It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, 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 everyone. This is Rob Wolf, and welcome to episode number 79 of Unformidable, where we take a look at some of the less heralded myths in our beloved franchise's ever quirky history, because to us, every player who dons the orange and blue is in some way unformidable. Well, friends, it'd be hard to talk about the myths right now without talking about their unbelievable, epic absolutely historic comeback against the Philadelphia Phillies this past Friday in early May of 2022. Down six runs entering the ninth inning, the Mets rallied for seven to claim a near-miraculous victory and remind us of the beauty of rooting for the Mets and really the beauty of baseball, the fact that there's no clock to run out and there's always the chance, no matter how infinitesimal, of witnessing an incredible comeback. And this was a nearly unprecedented, but not completely unprecedented comeback or event in Mets history. Twice before uh, the team has come back from six runs down in the ninth inning to eventually win a game. In fact, it's more like the orbit of a distant planet or a comet with a smaller orbit than Halley's. I think my science is probably way off on this, but. Uh, it's a virtual every 24 or 25 year or so occurrence, apparently, as it happened first in 1973 and next in 1997. This was such a joyous game, I might need to find someone from each game. But uh, for 1997, 
the most recent example of this, it was easy uh, to find a random short-time Met who played a huge role in this comeback, but wound up doing little else in his short time with the Mets. Someone who was a bit of a perfect harbinger to me of the Bobby V era, uh, with the he was kind of the rando, kind of underappreciated Bobby V type of player, like player he would t- kind of tend to stick with, like your Benny Agbayani's of the world. And he delivered one of the biggest hits in that last game in which the Mets staged such an epic comeback, September 13th, 1997. Certainly his biggest hit and his biggest moment as a Met. Um, it was delivered by a minor leaguer and eventual Japan League prodigy who could never quite carve out a regular season MLB role, Roberto Petegin. Roberto Antonio Petegin was born on June 2, 1971, in Porlimer, Venezuela. He was signed as an undrafted amateur free agent at the age of 18 by the Houston Astros on February 13th of 1990. Uh, they signed him directly off of the Leones del Caracas team, where the young first baseman was already a star. And Petagine would be an interesting minor league prospect, uh, not devoid of attention. Uh, twice Baseball America ranked him among the Astros' top 10 prospects in both 1992 and 1994. Okay. Uh, but in some ways, he was probably a bit ahead of his time insofar as being pre-Moneyball, as his calling cards were really a great eye uh, and strike zone control, uh, but he didn't quite have enough power or not the prototypical power that your first base prospects would normally, you would want them to flash and did not really have the defensive prowess or pedigree to, or athleticism, I guess, to play elsewhere. Just for sake of demonstration, at age 22, he had an incredible season at double A Jackson hitting, uh, had a slash line of 334, 442, 529, Uh, 84 walks to only 89 strikeouts, but only only 15 home runs, a lot of doubles. He'd follow that up with another good statistical season in AAA by OPS, but again, not really hitting long ball. Um, He would work his way up through the organization and earn a major league roster spot with the Astros in early April of 1994, and in fact would make his major league debut on opening day of the 94 season, Uh, against the Montreal Expos, pinch hitting for pitcher Todd Jones in the bottom of the 11th inning, and striking out against Expos reliever Tim Scott. Petagin would get sent down after five games, all pinch hit appearances or late inning defensive replacements. Uh, He'd get called back up for a very brief stint again in July-August, but he would go 0 for 7 with a walk in eight Major League Plate appearances in 1994, spending most of his time in AAA. Maxed out, or perhaps no place uh, in the Astros organization for him. You know, Again, he primarily played first base, and he was behind future Hall of Famer Jeff Bagwell, who was really in the prime of his career with the Astros. In the 94 offseason, Petagine was included in a huge trade uh, that the Astros would make with the San Diego Padres, an 11-player trade in all, in which the primary pieces going from the Astros to San Diego were Ken Caminiti and Steve Finley, and the primary players going from San Diego to 
the Astros were Derek Bell and Ricky Gutierrez. Um, obviously, Pettigene went with Caminiti and Finley and also Andujar Cedeno and Brian Williams in the package to the Padres. For the second straight year, Pettigene would make his organization's opening day roster. Um, he would spend most of the 95 season with San Diego, although he would spend a little time on the shuttle between AAA, Las Vegas, and the Padres. On April 27th of 1995, he would record his first major league hit and RBI, coming in as a defensive replacement late in a 12-1 game. He delivered a single the other way to plate his first major league RBI against his former team, the Astros, driving in his trade friend and partner, Steve Finley. In the very next game in which he'd appear, Pettigene would come in in a double switch in the seventh inning with his team trailing. He would, in his first plate appearance, he would execute a successful sacrifice bunt. Gotta appreciate a good sacrifice bunt from your backup first baseman, power-hitting, patient, slow uh, first baseman-type player. I mean, I appreciate a good sacrifice bunt from anyone in the right situation, unlike some of my more heavily sabermetrically inclined friends, but I digress. Because in his next at-bat in the game, Pettigene would do more of what was in his nature and employ one of those three true outcomes, hitting his first career Major League home run. Uh, It was a big one. He came up in the bottom of the eighth. The Padres had been ahead, uh, but fell behind 7-6. So when he came up in the bottom of the eighth, his first career home run off of Jeff Brantley of the Reds tied the game up giving the Padres the opportunity to then win the game in the bottom of the ninth, which they would 8-7. to seven. As I think I said earlier, Pettigene would spend most of 95 in the majors with the Padres, pairing almost exclusively as a pinch hitter, uh, played first base, backup first baseman, one or two games in the outfield. He'd actually get more at-bats and get in more games in 95 at the age of 24 than he ever would... Again, in the majors, uh, he appeared in 89 games, 152 plate appearances, 124 at-bats. Uh, it was kind of uh, very very much his major league career and the perception of him in a nutshell. He hit 234, but his on-base percentage was 367, uh, 371 slugging for a 738 OPS. As I said, 152 plate appearances. He walked in 26 of them but did strike out in 41 of them. Actually good for an almost league average 98 OPS+. plus. But again, especially back then, and especially from a first baseman bench bat, I think the S was appreciated more than the O, and uh, you know, it didn't seem like he slugged enough to, you know, for teams to see him as someone who was deserving of a regular role beyond beyond that bench role. Perhaps not seeing a spot for him in his in the major league roster. Um, he might have been out of options, I don't know. But in spring training of nineteen ninety six, Pettigene got traded to our New York Mets on March seventeenth, nineteen ninety six. and Luis Arroyo would come to the Mets for Scott Adair and Pete Walker. Pettigene would flourish again in AAA, this time in Norfolk. His slash line of 319, 421, 529. Again, not a ton of power, but his AAA manager in Norfolk, one Bobby Valentine, 
was definitely quite impressed. And in fact, Petagin would wind up getting more playing time with the Mets in 1996 than the brief moment on September 13th, 1997 that really prompted me to do this podcast. Uh, as in August, late August of 1996, the Mets blissfully, mercifully, finally fired Dallas Green, who in my memory just had all of the gruff, old-school bluster of an old-timey baseball manager without the, I don't know, intellectual bent that Buck Walter at least seems to bring to that role. But at any rate, uh, when Dallas Green got fired, Bobby V came up from Norfolk as the season there ended to take over and get a little trial run of what would be an impressive tenure as Met manager, and one of the immediate beneficiaries of Bobby V taking over was, in fact, Roberto Pettigine. Pettigine actually made his Met debut in on May 31st of 1996. He got a brief call-up when regular first baseman Rico Bronia was a little banged up and went 0-4 for 4 against Ramon Martinez and the L.A. Dodgers. He'd record his first two hits as a Met the next day, June 1st, against knuckleballer Tom Candiotti, singling to center in his second at-bat in the fourth inning, and getting his second hit and first Met RBI in style, singling to right to score Jose Vizcaino and tie the game at three, and coming around to score on a Chris Jones double to give the Mets a 4-3 lead that they would hold on to and win. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a game in which Dodgers catcher Mike Piazza went two for three to raise his June slash line to 377, 449, 623 for a 1.072 OPS, man, it'd be great if the Mets could get a player like that guy. But at any rate, when Bronia was healthy again, Pettigine went back down in mid-June, and he didn't really come back up again until August, when he would again serve in that bench role. Uh, but in late August, when Bobby V took over, uh, Pettigine's playing time did increase. And in, as I said, in late August, between August 24th and August 31st, Pettigine recorded three homers and eight RBIs over those seven games. Probably, definitely, his best stretch to Met, since I think he only had four home runs as a New York Met. Bronia's star had faded. He had a great 95, but struggled in 96, and both when he played and with injuries. And Pettigine really seemed like a true Bobby V kind of player, underappreciated, a gamer, you know, diamond in the rough, player that only Bobby V is wise enough to appreciate. Um, so you might have thought 
he had a chance there, but unfortunately for Pettigene, but fortunately for the New York Mets, uh, in addition to trading Rico Bronia in the 1996 offseason, the Mets would pull off one of the best trades in their franchise's history, bringing John Olerud over from the Toronto Blue Jays. Olerud would, of course, regain his form as a premier hitter and quickly become a steady and absolutely constant present presence as a Met appearing in 154 games in 1997 and 160 and 162 the following two seasons. So whether Pettigene was liked or appreciated or not, there wasn't much of a place for him on the 1997 roster with the with an everyday left-handed hitting first baseman of basically star-level quality already manning the spot. And Pettigene would respond to being relegated to AAA with style, uh, winning the International League MVP award in 1997 at the age of 26. Uh, he would uh, hit 318 on base of 430, slugging of 605 in AAA, finally going deep, hitting 31 homers and driving in 100 runs for AAA Norfolk in 129 games. So of course, when rosters expanded on September 1st, you kind of had to give the AAA MVP uh, call-up for the expanded rosters as an extra bat off the bench. And something crazy had happened with the 1997 Mets after some dark, dark seasons in the mid-90s. Uh, they're actually pretty good. Uh, Bobby Valentine, uh, as the Mets entered into September, the team was 74-62, and 62, uh, surely the best record they had seen in quite some time, uh, with a very vague outside shot at the playoffs. Of course, the Braves were still the Braves uh, with, in their run of dominance. The Mets were ten and a half games behind the Braves. Um, 74 and 62 would have been right in the wild card hunt, except that was, 1997 was, of course, the rare year when the Marlins actually went all in and bought some players and went for it before their giant sell-off. So the Braves were 85 and 52 as September dawned, Florida 81 and 55, and the Mets 74 and 62, seven behind the Marlins for the sole wild card uh, that was available in 1997. I knew it was probably futile, but you know, we hadn't had a whiff of a pennant race since really 1990 uh, as a Met fan. By mid-September, the Mets had gotten as close as five and a half, which was about as close as they had been in a while as the Expos came into Shea to face the Mets. Pettigene had very little playing time until this point, and he was 0 for 7 in that playing time. Four pinch-hitting appearances, and then the day before the Game of the Giant comeback, he went 0 for 3 in a 15-inning loss uh, where he came in the game after Olerud was pinch-run for uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning as the Mets tied the game. So five and a half back with about 16 games to play. Not an enviable position to be in, but you could still dream. You know, meaningful September games and all that. But really, every game counted. We were chasing the eventual world champions who were setting a hot wild card pace, and the Braves were far ahead. So it didn't look promising when the Mets fell behind the Expos, 2-0, two batters into the game on a Mark Ritzelonic single and a Mike Lansing home run off of starter Jason Isringhausen, 
and 3 nothing before the top of the first was even done. And it just seemed to get worse from there as the Expos tacked on two more in the fifth and a sixth run in the eighth inning to take a 6 nothing lead. As starter Dustin Hermanson absolutely stymied the Mets, actually carrying a no-hitter into the sixth inning, broken up on a bloop single to left by Carlos Mendoza. The Marlins were smoking the Giants 8-1, to and it looked really like the only memorable moment of this game would be Mendoza's first career hit, and probably the end of any faint playoff hopes the Mets still had. And in fact, the leadoff hitter, uh, Jason Hardke, flew out to right uh, to lead off the ninth. Butch Husky and Carlos Bayerga each singled to put runners on first and second. And then Brian McRae came to the plate, and Hermanson was clearly tiring. McRae hit a fly ball to very deep center to the warning track, but flew out, meaning there were two outs, and the game was still 6 nothing. That brought up Roberto Pettigian, who Valentine sent in to pinch hit for Todd Pratt. Bayerga took second on defensive indifference, uh, pre-cool SNY graphic, of course, uh, leaving runners on second and third, and the count ran to one and two on Pettigian, leaving Hermanson one strike away from a complete game shutout. Uh, but he was clearly tiring and on his 129th and last pitch of the game, Pettigine lined a single up the middle to bring in two runs and cut the lead to 6-2. to two. Shane Bennett came in the game, and Louis Lopez ground a single to right to move Pettigine over to second, bringing in Expos closer Oogie Urbina. Not sure why Bennett came in for one batter. I don't know if it was a lefty-lefty thing, but... The ever-clutch, pinch-hitting Matt Franco singled up the middle to load the bases for their mercurial Carl Everett, who took Urbina deep into the right field bullpen in Shea for a game-tying grand slam and an utterly stunning six-run ninth-inning comeback for the Mets. Unlike this past weekend in Philadelphia, the Mets would not close the deal. Edgardo Alfonso would strike out against Ugi Urbina to send the game into extra innings. John Franco would tightrope through the 10th and 11th, as he was wont to do, uh, before Bernard Gilkey would hit a three-run homer down the left field line in the bottom of the 11th to send the Mets to a stunning combat victory, the scope of which they would not again match for 25 more years till just this past week in Philadelphia. Mets would never really get it within five of the Marlins, at least until the end of the season when the Marlins had already clinched the wild card. Uh, The Mets did close the season only four games out, but while a race uh, never got closer than five, but it was certainly a prelude and a precursor to those exciting Bobby V years, uh, the more heartbreaking 1998 stretch run, when it felt more realistic that we might get a wild card, but fell short so late in the season, and then the more exhilarating 1999 and 2000 playoff runs. For the unformidable Roberto Pettigine, though, that would be his last hit as a New York Met. He would go 1-for-15 in 18 plate appearances over the 1997 season. And prior to 1998 spring training, in February of 1998, the Mets would trade him to the Cincinnati Reds 
for minor league infielder Yuri Sanchez. At the age of 27, in 1998, Petagine would go on to win his second straight MVP award in AAA. He would not even get a cup of coffee with the Reds in 1997, uh, spending the whole year in AAA. Um, he did appear in 38 games for the Reds, excuse me, 34 games for the Reds in 1998. Very small, small sample size of 79 plate appearances and 62 at-bats, uh, but far and away his best numbers in small samples that he was given in the majors. He hit 258 with a 405 on base percentage and a 468 slugging for a 128 OPS plus. It was unappreciated though, and after the 98 season, the Reds sold his contract to the Occult Swallows of the Nippon Professional League. Playing in Japan from 98 to 2004, Petagine flourished. He won three gold gloves, two home run titles, and hit 317 with 223 homers and 594 RBIs in 756 games in Nippon. And seven years after his last major league time in 1998, Petagine would get another shot. The Boston Red Sox would sign him, and he'd appear in 18 games for the Red Sox in 2005 and 31 games for the Mariners in 2006 which would bring about the end of his Major League Baseball career. Um, He would, from 2008 to 2010, play in Mexico and the Korean League before signing, perhaps appropriately, back in the Japanese League in 2010 at the age of 39, where he would wrap up his professional baseball career. Hopefully we get another dramatic six-run Met comeback again sooner than 25 years. Or hopefully the Mets never fall behind by six runs again, ever, ever again. I can dream, right? It's it's an optimistic season so far in 2022. But when those dramatic comet-like comebacks happen, you have to cherish them and remember them. And in 1997, that comeback likely doesn't happen without a clutch at bat from the unformidable Roberto Pettigine. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Unformidable. Please go to AmazonAvenue.com for more Mets-related content. You can follow Amazon Avenue on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and the Gram. You can find this and all of our Amazon pods wherever you get your podcasts. Original music by Bunga. I'm on Twitter at WolfRR, W-O-L-F-F-R-R, and the show is at Unformidable. Thank you, and as always, let's go Mets!